My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Over the past uh, many, many years, I have tried to become more and more of a student of understanding the culture in which we live in. If you've been around for any number of years, you will know that the world changes and everything seems to shift and the seasons go by. If, if you really are a good student of culture, you know that the world in which we live in today here in uh, the Western world or in the United States, it itself has shifted. And we are now living in what's called a post-Christian culture. And so we've talked about this, we've shared about this, and it's part of my endeavor to preach through this. Uh, but I wanted to just kind of just say, here's a snapshot of what that means, just, you know, just in case you haven't really seen and kind of put everything on a post-it note, the world in which we live in. Well, first of all, we've got to step back and discover that if you go back in history, uh, what began was a pre-Christian culture. And a pre-Christian culture is a culture that believes in many gods. Now, <clears throat> when I say pre-Christian, I don't just mean necessarily in time. It could also be in space, because today there are a lot of pre-Christian cultures. But a pre-Christian culture believes in many gods. Each person is a victim to fate. The world is full of irrational spiritual forces. To survive, people must obey the taboos of the gods through either turning to shaman, to witch doctors, for guidance and protection. <coughs> The world is a frightening, spiritually charged place. People feel overwhelmed by forces beyond their control. Now, the book of Acts illustrates the Apostle Paul encountering this culture everywhere he went with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so here's a shot I took of the Acropolis in Athens with the Parthenon up there. Uh, very, very well defined in this story in Acts 17 where the Apostle Paul goes up. And, uh, of course, every city he went to had a lot of gods. But in particular in Athens, there were gods everywhere. So a pre-Christian culture is a culture that believes in a lot of gods, and they believe in those gods under fear. Now, uh, if we jump into our culture of the last 2,000 years, we'd call that a Christian culture. A Christian culture is different because it's rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic. That means the Old Testament and New Testament, the Jewish, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and then what happened then when Jesus came as the, the Messiah, the, the promised one from the Old Testament. It centers its order on the worship of the one true God. The whole of the universe is arranged by God in a rational, sacred order, as opposed to the pre-Christian where it's chaos. The presence of God ensures justice and order. Since God reveals himself through scripture, people find peace, security, and faith by worshiping God and obeying his commands in the world. The past 2,000 years have seen the expansion of such a Christian culture, and churches have been built all around the world. Now, 
I grew up on the tail end of that culture. I was born in 1964. And so this is the world I was born into, but we no longer live in that world. We live in what's called a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture exists primarily to define itself against the past Christian culture. It's very important to understand that. It's Energy is devoted to deconstructing the sacred commandments and prohibitions of the Christian culture. The only authority is found within each person as opposed to a sacred text or as a fear of a God. Each person and all authority that challenges and restricts the autonomy of the individual must be burned to the ground. Now, I chose this picture uh, really because this is the type of what we see. Anyone that says what anybody wants to do would be wrong, that is the only sin in the world anymore. The only sin is to tell someone they're wrong or their behavior is sin. And, and, and it's not enough to ignore that anymore, to be tolerant. We must destroy it and burn that to the ground. The ultimate authority in this culture is the self, and anyone or anything that threatens this belief is dangerous and must be destroyed. Now, today we live in a post-Christian culture. Now, that's not to be feared. In fact, uh, the sky is not falling. It is a little gray because we live in Oregon, but the sky is not falling. And so I'm not running around like Chicken Little, you know, or a chicken with its head cut off or kind of panicking. I think it's a beautiful time to be alive. Uh, The fascinating part about this is even though the sky isn't falling, the tectonic plates of the earth have shifted since I was born. And we live in a different world today. The ground has shifted. Or you could say we're in a current of a river, and the river has shifted its current, and it's increasingly against what I believe and what you believe. But what a great time to be alive. I think it's a beautiful time. And what's fascinating about living in the Pacific Northwest, uh, particularly in, in western Uh, Portland or in the Washington County area is that if we look around, we go to school, uh, we go to stores, we go to 24-hour fitness, we work, we live in a neighborhood of all three cultures. We actually have people around us who've come in from other cultures that are still pre-Christian. They've never heard about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and they're still living by worshiping God, sacrificing to God, offering to God, and living under the fear of appeasing a God. And we live a lot in a Christian culture because we are America, and we're known to be a Christian nation, although I don't believe that's true by any means if we just look at politics and Hollywood and everything else. But we also live in a post-Christian culture. And I tell friends, I've, I've been around the United States and, and I've hung out with pastors in the South and they talk about problems with church down there. I go, man, I love the Pacific Northwest because people have openly rejected God. What a great place to be, you know, because they're not faking it going to church, right? It, it's a great place to be when we look around us and realize people have abandoned God. And they've said, I want to learn to live life apart from God. I, I want to just not consider God in my life. I think what a great place to be and what a great time to be alive because we have God. And we have the message of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. And so even though maybe growing up in a Christian culture might have felt safe and easy, I think now being in a post-Christian culture is far more exciting because we get to shine the light of Christ in a way that we didn't have to before. But now we desperately need to because the world needs the light of Jesus Christ. And so the reason I'm excited about this book of Ecclesiastes is because Ecclesiastes is a book written much like our culture today. If you were here last week, we took a look at the author, Solomon, and we looked at a a big history of his life, a synopsis, and we saw that Solomon decided to leave God at the altar, literally. He said, okay, I'm just going to walk away from God, live life as if God no longer exists. That's post-Christian. So long before Jesus Solomon was one of the first post-Christians, okay? And he said, hey, I'm going to pursue riches. 
which is what our world has chosen to pursue instead of God. I'm going to pursue, you know, all the pleasures that I want, which is what Solomon did and what our world does. And and I want to pursue my own version of security. I want to live life as if I am the one who makes all the decisions and my life is the key to my fulfillment. Not anybody else, whether it's a book or a person or anyone else can tell me what's right or wrong. I alone determine that. Now, that's the world we live in. That's what Solomon tried to do. And what's really cool about Solomon is he wrote about it. Now, uh, I, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is terribly depressing if you don't get that perspective. And most Christians don't read it. And people have even wondered, why is it in the Bible? Okay. But I think it's a gorgeous book. It's a beautiful book. And it speaks to a post-Christian world in ways that a lot of our messages don't speak to. In fact, I would liken it to Kerouac. When, when uh, Kerouac wrote On the Road, he traveled the United States uh, with some buddies, and they pursued pleasure. They left the created order of, of God, of church, and they said, we want to you know, pursue sex, drugs, and pre-rock and roll, which was jazz and poetry. There was the pre-beatnik generation, and this was the beginning of the beat movement. And so in the 40s and 50s, Kerouac writes and pursues all of this. And at the end of the road, the reality is he just plagiarized Solomon. His whole book is just what Solomon said. I did all those things, and I think Solomon wrote it better. And so I could say Solomon's book is a better version of Kerouac, the pre-version. It's at the end of the road, okay? Because he, he has been there and done that and come back to tell us the story, right? And it's not as exciting as journeying across the United States to find yourself and to pursue every pleasure. Because what Solomon does is, is, I will keep you from a lot of pain. Now, how many of you here actually need the pain to learn? How many of you make your own mistakes? Well, all of us should raise our hand. But I mean, you're like, I'm not going to learn from anybody else. I'm going to be stupid myself, right? Okay, I know, yeah. All right. And how many of you learn from other people's mistakes? Hopefully some. All right. But let's just be honest. We make our own mistakes. Even when somebody tells us, even when we know what's right or wrong, we walk down a journey, and if we're honest at the end of the road, we have to come back and realize, okay, I learned, and I learned a hard lesson. But that's where we're at in the United States today, and I think it's a beautiful time to be alive. And so if you have a Bible, you could turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. You open your Bible in the middle. It's the book of Psalms. Keep going a little bit through Proverbs. You get to Ecclesiastes. It's called the Wisdom Literature. And uh, it's, it's a great number of chapters. We'll see it till the end of the spring. And uh, we're really excited about this. So Solomon is the one who wrote the book. And this is how he begins his journey. He says, I just want to tell you about all the promises that were given to me. And it failed. Now check this out. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. So this is Solomon. It's interesting. He calls himself the teacher. That's a modern translation. It's actually not a very good translation. Uh, The older translations say preacher. That's even worse because who wants to listen to a preacher or a teacher, right? And yet you're all at church. Um, Okay. You you can be honest, you know, just after service. Uh, So uh, who wants to listen to their teacher? Who wants to listen to the preacher? A better word, if you go to the Hebrew, and a better understanding of the word is a philosophy professor because that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's a philosophical journey to the end of life and back. And what's beautiful about it is it doesn't really seem to answer questions as much as it asks questions. And that's why it's a philosophical book. Because a teacher or a preacher would just say, here are the three things or the four things 
uh, very didactic. This is what you memorize. This is what you're going to be tested on in a multiple choice. But that's not how Solomon does it. He asks questions, and every week we're going to see questions. It's the greatest way to teach. In fact, Jesus, if you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, you will discover that Jesus asked 307 questions. Now, what's really frustrating about Jesus is he was asked questions and didn't answer them except with a question. You know, and that's kind of fun, but that's a very Jewish way of learning. And so as a Jewish rabbi, when someone came and asked him a question like, uh, okay, Jesus, what's the greatest of all the commands? Jesus says, uh, so what do you read in the scripture? It's like, well, I don't want to read it. I just want you to tell me the answer. It's like, no, no, no. You got to put some work into this. Okay, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Go and do that. Jesus is frustrating if you're looking for answers until you discover the way you answer a question is with a question. And so Jesus is a master of that, and that is what Solomon does. And so the questions that Solomon is going to ask are 3,000 years old, but they're just like we would ask today because they are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And here is his argument. Here is his thesis. This is the sum total of the whole book. Everything is meaningless. I hope you're encouraged by that. Um, <laughs> It means empty or it means, uh, some translations say vanity of vanities. In fact, this word meaningless shows up about 38 times in the text. Four times, five times some say, just in the beginning, completely meaningless. And it's a, it's a word that means emptiness, futility, vapor, that which vanishes quickly and leaves nothing behind. And so I was driving down uh, from Lebanon down a mountain yesterday. I was at Camp Tadmore to men's equipping retreat. And as I came down, there was a mist on the ground. And, you know, you know what mist is like, right? It's just that precipitation that hovers around the ground there. And, but it's gone quickly, right? You can see the fog, and it's gone quickly. As I was going down, then I passed from the mist. There was a little bit of snow, actually, on the road. But I knew that would be gone as soon as the sun came out. It's that way. It's just like the breath of a vapor that comes out of our mouth. It's like the blades of grass that come up and quickly die. Solomon says, all of life is meaningless, completely meaningless, that's his thesis, that I've explored all of it, and it is vanity of vanities. It's emptiness of emptiness. It is meaningless of all meaningless. Now, thankfully, he doesn't stop the book there. <laughs> um, he goes on further. The American poet Carl Sandburg compared life this way. He said, life is like an onion. You peel it one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. <laughs> That's great. I like that. And Solomon is going to peel back the layers of the onion. And if we only stay with the first statement that everything is meaningless, there's a lot of reason to weep. But he's going to give us a clue in his text about why we can live a life that actually has meaning. He starts with it. The rest of the book is meaningless, but he ends with the ultimate meaning in life, and that is to know God. Well, look at what he says. First of all, he says here, uh, we're going to take a look at this. What does a person get or what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? We'll come back to that. Let's, let's peel a layer of the onion. Let's look at generations. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Nothing's ever different, right? Another layer of the onion. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries around to rise again. It just repeats itself, right? It's, it, there's no purpose in it, right? The wind blows south and then turns to north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Meaningless. There's no purpose to it. It just keeps repeating ad nauseum. I'm exhausted because there's no value in it. Rivers run into the sea, 
but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Solomon says if you just look at the natural order and peel back the layers of all of it, there's no purpose to life. There's no purpose. And he uses a fascinating word. He says, what do people get? Some translations say profit or gain, but it really means what's left over. What is left over after you've run the course of your life under the sun? When all is said and done, does it matter? Is there any value to living your life, whether you live it with this purpose or that purpose? When all is said and done, is there anything left over? After all of your hard work, after all of your energy, after all of trying to make it uh, with whatever it might be, money or fame, a purpose, a value, when all is said and done and you're gone, did you really make a difference in the world today? living life under the sun. He says, generations come and go and the earth never changes. Now, evolutionary biologists, scientists tell us that the earth is billions of years old. And if the earth is billions of years old, uh, you and I live 70, 80, 90 years, then that is meaningless. That there is no way your 70, 80, 90 years could ever amount to any value in the scope of billions of years. Now, what he says here is under the sun, and that's, that's a key part of this book, is if you live life under the sun, meaning that you can live life for temporary purposes, uh, in the, the canopy of space that we have all around us, the, the relationships, the purpose here, as opposed to living life under heaven, meaning there's a greater purpose, an eternal purpose to your life. If you choose to live life under the sun, what do you get? What is left over after everything in your life? And the answer is nothing. There's really nothing. Again, this is a philosophy professor. He's meant to discourage and depress you, okay? That's that's the best thing that he's going to do for us today is cause us to ask the deep question, does my life really matter? And if you live life under the sun, it does not matter. And your life has no value and has no purpose. Now, the key to Solomon's thinking here is this. As a philosophy professor, he's saying is, if all you ever think about is a natural world, life apart from God, if all you ever think about is life lived under the sun in this world we have today, then our life is going to be meaningless. If we leave God out of the equation, of the relationship of our life, if we live as if this life is the only life we have, then we should be pitied amongst all people. Now, so many people, I would say the majority of people live as if uh, a religious experience is a purely subjective experience, meaning that's something you personally have. That is your uh, desire to have a personal experience that's religious. Some biologists, scientists would say it's just, uh, you know, a series of electronic, you know, stabs in the brain. It's just a little movement. It's a little electricity that's flowing back and forth. That praying and hope and faith and belief in an eternal God is purely subjective. There's no objectivity. It doesn't exist. There is no God. There's no way to prove there's a God. So if you have a desire for God, that's fine for you. If you have a religious experience, whatever that might be, that's great for you. But that is your experience and it cannot be a greater experience than your own because there can't be anything outside of the subjective experience if evolutionary biology is true. I mean, if you need it, great. 
Karl Marx, religion is the opiate for the masses, great, no problem. If you want to control people with religion, if you want to give them something to keep chewing on as they go out to the slave mines, go for it, no problem, that's fine. But it's nothing more than a subjective experience that you and you alone are having. And you can't gauge it, you can't judge it, you can't measure it, it's your own experience. If life is lived under the sun, then that's all you have. So if you choose to have it, great, good for you. If you don't choose to have it, that's fine for me too. A lot of people go, I've never needed that because I don't need God because God's a crutch. If you need a crutch, go for it, okay? Uh, That's basically what life lived under the sun is all about. If no one can be sure about God existing, then do whatever you want to do. That's fine. Solomon says, if you choose to live this way, then your life is meaningless, and every pursuit will be meaningless. Now, he writes from his own perspective. We'll see in weeks to come. But he really basically says there's no value in it. There's nothing left over. Now, one of the hypocrisies I see in the theory of evolution uh, is this, and I'll I'll stop myself here. I actually do believe in evolution in a micro sense uh, because if you take a look at cats, for example, no, don't look at cats. That's a worthless. uh, Dogs, for example. Um, If you take a look at dogs, there's a great variety of dogs within the species known as canine, right? The dogs, okay? Um, And and there's a great variety. If you look at Darwin and the Galapagos Islands and you study origin of species, there there was the finches. There's a great variety in all that. That's wonderful. I believe in all that. There's a lot of variety within the species that God has given a tremendous width to what can happen within a species, okay? No problem. Look at humankind and the colors and the shapes and the sizes. There's a lot of variety. But we're still people, right? Dogs are dogs and people are people. Some of you are confused about that. But therapy will help you. Um, now, now, here's the deal. Evolution would say, and I know I'm, I'm stretching it, but dogs become people, okay? A species becomes a different species, okay? That's what the macro would say, is that one ceased to be and became another. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that God created species to coexist and to work together. And there's a lot of change and variety within a species. But if you believe in evolution as, you know, uh, you know a, a dinosaur became a bird, okay, to the extreme end, okay, if you believe in that, uh, then you have to come to terms with the fact that nothing really matters. Why would we worry about animals going extinct because evolution would teach us that it's all about survival of the fittest, that everything is an accident, everything is random, only the fittest survive, that genetic mutations devolve. Um, If you look at the second law of thermodynamics, it states, well, if you have a teenager, you know the second law of thermodynamics because it's their room, that things go from order to chaos, right? uh, You don't even have to do anything. It just, everything falls apart, right? You look at a car, it falls apart, right? Uh, that's the second law of thermodynamics, that things don't go from decay to order, they go from order to decay, all right? But let's just say that you believe that things can just miraculously come from nothing, okay? What, what is the value? What is the purpose? If, if it's just survival of the fittest, why aren't we championing the fittest to survive? Why do we care about baby seals? Why do we care about pandas in China? Why do we care about that? Why do we care that they go extinct? Why do we care about the environment? Why do we care about racism? Why do we care about sexism? Why do we care about the poor? Why do we care about the undereducated? Why do we care about building wells in Africa? Why would we care about any of that? Because if evolution is true, the strongest need to survive and thrive and need to crush everybody else. Why do we care about genocide? 
Why do we, we shouldn't care about any of those things. Because if morality is whatever you make it and that's a subjective experience, how dare anybody tell me what I can and can't do and what I should and shouldn't believe in? Why would we champion the rights of people who, according to evolution, have no rights? Because they're not strong. Only the fittest survive. That's what evolutionary biology would teach us. Why do we care about removing violence and oppression from countries? Why do we care about the poor? Why do we care if at the end of life we just go to dust? We're food for worms. What, why do we care about that? Well, see, the Bible tells us why we care about it because there's a moral fabric built within each of us. But if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe in an objective higher than us power, then why would we care about any of this? I believe it's just futility. And worse than that, I believe it's hypocrisy. That how dare anybody tell us that the moral right that is fill in the blank, because there can't be any morals outside of our own experience. You say, but I just want to make the world a better place. The philosophy professor would say, you're foolish, because you can't make the world a better place. Give up trying. I mean, if there's no God sustaining the universe, if there is no personal God that's created it, if there is no value beyond us, if there's no afterlife, then your life will never make a dent. It's like a footprint in the sand by the ocean. Within one or two waves, 30 to 40 seconds, your footprint will be washed away. And if that is all there is to life, then you better live life to the fullest and take whatever you can get because you only go around once. And how dare anybody ever become a hypocrite and say that their value trumps your value because that's just their subjective experience over yours. Because if all you are is an evolved creature, then you alone have the right to determine what you alone can do. That it would be the truth of life without God. C.S. Lewis, another great philosopher who was an atheist who became a believer in Jesus Christ, said it this way, if all we have is life under the sun, which means that we really don't know that there's any meaning in life, that we aren't put here for a purpose, that we are simply this, we are simply the result of an accidental collision of molecules. That's all life teaches us under the sun. A French biologist, Jacques Monod, said it this way, do you know why we exist? Now, don't get your hopes up because this is a French (laughs) biologist with a little bit of philosophy thrown in. Do you know why we exist? Our number came up like in a Monte Carlo game. We won in a crapshoot. We are accidentally created by the universe to be conscious of the fact that we're accidents. (laughs) Hope that encouraged you. We're nothing but a series of accidents, right? A series of unfortunate events, right? But the hypocrisy of our modern, and I would say post-Christian culture says, my origin is insignificant, my destiny is insignificant, but while I'm here, I want to work for human rights, I want to work for animal rights, I want to work for the environment, I want to work for the poor, I want to work for the underclass, and I would say, give up doing that, just work for yourself. Just pursue it with all gusto, right? If you want to be true to yourself, and your evolutionary biology, just do whatever you can do because when it's done, the lights go out. If life is lived under the sun, that's your existence. If there's no God in the picture, life has no meaning. There are no answers. There is no hope. There, you can't achieve anything beyond your own experience. Now, Solomon goes on to say this, everything is wearisome beyond description. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. That is his conclusion. But he goes on to say it this way, and I love this. He says, history 
merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people will go on YouTube and say, here is something new. That's actually in the, in the original Hebrew down there. Um, sometimes people say, here is something new, but it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. I thought about that. A couple weeks ago, uh, I was uh, checking out, you know, some things on, on the internet and the latest fashion, the latest, you know, young gal, on, she's the latest Disney product and that's all she is, is a Disney product. I'm sorry about that, but there have been a lot of Disney products and she's out there and she's the newest thing and everybody's fawning over her and she can't really sing that well, but with auto-tune, everybody sounds great. Um, and so, you know, and, and she's the latest and greatest and I think, how boring are we as a culture? How boring are we? Do we not remember we've done this with all these Disney products, with all these kids? I mean, do we not remember all of the Disney? I mean, it's just, my mom, you know, she she was just enamored by the first Disney product, Annette Funicello, if you're old enough to remember her and her T-Bird, right? Nothing new is under the sun. Why are we impressed, you know? Because it's just another boy band, right? And it, it doesn't take much to get a boy band going. I just saw a music video from the latest boy band. It's a country boy band. Sounds good. Total hipsters on a beach. It's a great. Everybody's playing their instruments. All the harmonies, piano, guitar. It's awesome. It's like, been there, done that. Do you not remember Backstreet Boys, NSYNC? Boys to Men. Come on, Boys to Men. I mean, do you not remember the platters, the coasters? I mean, it, it, nothing new is under the sun, my friends. It's all been tried before, and personally, if you ask me, I take Chuck Berry over anything that comes out today, okay? All right. But my bottom line is this. Solomon is right. If life is lived under the sun, it's boring because we just rehash the old and think it's new, but it's not new. It's not new. He says, we don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. Now, think about this. Sorry, but your life is insignificant. You're just a speck that rises up and goes away. Yeah, people around you now, they know you, they love you. Your kids know you, your grandkids, right? That's beautiful. But how many of us remember our great, 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 great grandparents? We don't know anything, right? I mean, I did the ancestry DNA thing and I, you know, everything that I knew was confirmed, that I've been told is confirmed, where I'm from, you know, the British area and a little Germanic and up in Ireland. I get all that. I know that. I knew that. You know, I saw where our family, you know, immigrated into the Ohio Valley in Ohio and Indiana and migrated west. I, I know all that. I get all that. I know my mom's family, the Hutchins, and I've, you know, seen that. I, I'm closer to them than my dad's family, but I didn't really know a lot about the Gleason side of things. And my cousin, Gina, who, you know, no offense if she's listening to this podcast, I didn't even know her. She said, hey, I want to know more about the family. And so she did this whole chart, and I gave her stats about my wife and I and marriage and the kids and everything. And she sent this back. It was beautiful. It was a great job she did of the Gleason side of the family and grandma and grandpa. And I did not know that they were both married beforehand and had kids beforehand. I didn't know that. I don't even know all my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And I look at the list of everybody there, and I can, I can remember a couple stories. But the fact is, to me, it's all meaningless. No offense to them, but I don't know them, right? And, and in a couple generations, nobody else is going to know them either, right? Think about this. If all is lived under the sun, if all of life is under the sun, generations will come and generations will go and nobody will remember and nobody will care. That's the end of life under the sun. But here's why I believe life does matter. I believe life matters because God matters. I believe that there is a different way to live than just under the sun. 
Even though we live here in this world, we can live life with eternity in mind, an eternal perspective. If, live, if life is lived under the sun, you're going to die under the sun. But if there is a God, and if that God is a personal God, then we are not just an accident that was just going to happen, and an accident that's going to happen. And we're not trying to live life with a purpose between two accidents. We're not just insignificant in the beginning and insignificant in the end and trying to create some significance in the middle. If there is a God, then we can find reason in life because God provides that reason. And I believe when you come to know God and discover God, there is a purpose, there is a value, there is an identity in life that goes far beyond what any of us can create on our own. And I believe that when you come to know God, you begin to understand that life is greater than the life we live today, that this life under the sun is bigger than that. In fact, it's the beginning of eternal life. And what we do today is more than just living and dying. It's eternally exciting because we can make decisions today that will affect our eternity. As a youth pastor for many, many years, and I used to say it this way, it's shocking to me that this little life we live, 70, 80, 100 years, is so small, but the rest of life, all eternity, is long. And what we do in this little life matters for the rest of eternity. Now, um, one of my family's favorite places to go, or at least it was Seth's favorite place to go on family night, was KFC. And I'm all about the colonel, you know? I, I like, man... It's the only part of Kentucky I like, you know? And uh, it's the chicken. And uh, it's not the chicken as much as it's the sides. I mean, come on. I could just go and if they have a $5 box of sides, I'd be it, right? And gain 250 pounds. Okay, because the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the beans and the corn and the biscuits and, and the honey. And man, I, I, some of you are like, where's lunch, right? Okay. Um, but whenever, whenever we go to KFC, uh, I can't help but think about something that happened almost 20 years ago at that KFC down on 1st Street in the corner there. Because almost 20 years ago, I sat down with my friend Billy. And after two years of building a friendship with Billy, sharing the message of Jesus over and over again with Billy, answering as many questions as I could, after the biscuits were all eaten and the corn was all gone, I looked at Billy and I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to follow Jesus Christ right now? And he looked at me and said, no. And so right there in KFC, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ and follow him. And I'm telling you, his eternal destiny was changed that moment. And man, I was excited. I was excited. And I've seen Billy since then. He's moved away, he and his family. And whenever we get together, we talk about that moment at KFC. It was almost 20 years ago. If I could see him today, we'd talk about KFC and what happened at KFC. And it's more than just chicken, my friends. It's Jesus. And there's a sermon right there, by the way. That, it, if you lived in the South, that would be a whole sermon. Um, and you know what? If Billy lives 20 more years, which I doubt he will, he's much older than me. If I live 20 more years, which I will if I stop going to KFC, um, I'm telling you, we would talk about that moment. But here's the greater thing. I firmly believe this, that there is a God and life matters. Because in 20,000 years, Billy and I will be sitting in heaven talking about that day in KFC when he received Christ because that mattered for more than under the sun. That mattered for all eternity. And my friends, if you have not made that decision to believe in a personal God and follow him through Jesus Christ, you might have only this life under the sun. You'll miss out on the real life to come through Jesus Christ. I believe that what we do today can matter for all eternity because you will either spend 
all eternity with God or without him. Life is temporary, my friends. Life is short. And then the next life begins. Maybe you're here and you don't really believe in a personal God. So glad you're here at Sunrise. Our church exists for you. So you could know that life can count. But let's say you're trying to make life count. Let's say outside of God, you're trying to make a right and wrong. You're trying to have compassion and mercy and you try to have beauty and order and you want your life to have meaning. You know why that's awesome? Because you're living as if there is a God. You just haven't thought about it yet. You're actually living if there's more than just a subjective experience. You're living as if there truly is a God that can add value and purpose to life. You just haven't met him yet. And no offense, you just haven't woken up to the fact that you're a hypocrite. Because <laughs> you're living as if God exists, but that you're living as if he doesn't exist, right? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be great to discover that all your hopes and dreams are really found outside of yourself and they come by following God? The reason you think this way, the reason you feel this way, the reason you act this way is because you're living as if God exists. And my friends, I just have good news. He does exist. And he wants to know you and have a personal relationship with you. C.S. Lewis said it so well in Mere Christianity that the reason we have morals is because a moral God put those in us into the very depths of our heart. We're gonna see in a few weeks, Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that God has planted eternity in our hearts. And you can't run away from that. It is there even though we try to deny it. So the purpose of your life and my life is greater than our happiness. It's greater than our personal fulfillment. It's greater than our success and dreams and ambition. As the pastor said it, well, you were made by God and for God. And until you discover that, all of life will not make sense. But once you discover it, everything will come into focus. Jesus said it so well in Matthew 26. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. It's an exchange you need to make. And what do you benefit if you gain, there it is, what, what, what do you get if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? There's Jesus once again asking questions, you know. No, there's nothing more important than your soul because there is life, more than life under the sun. It's a life lived with Jesus Christ. Just before I moved to Hillsboro in 1994, I picked up a, a great little book. It was the first book that really jump-started my journey of understanding post-Christian America. It was a book called Life After God. It's where I took the title from uh, for this series. And in this book, Life After God, Douglas Copeland describes he and his friend's journey. And their journey is to figure out how to discard God, how to pursue life without God. And in this book, he writes and he journeys and he, he goes on these adventures. He lives up in British Columbia. And um, so it's like the first generation that said, God doesn't exist and we're going to live life as if God has no part of our life. He's just not there anymore. And again, to be post-Christian isn't so much after Christian. It means to live life as if it has no meaning, that it's not a part of life anymore. It just doesn't matter. And so reading this book, it was, it was Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Again, it was just depressing because we're pursuing everything apart from God. And, and what shook me to my core, and I wept as I read the last page of the book, this was his conclusion of living life after God. He says this. Now here's my secret. I'll tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is I need God. 
that I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. This is the guy that wrote a book called Generation X that coined the term for us, that I'm a product, I'm a Generation X person, born in 1964, the last of that, baby boomer, the first, the Gen X. And he said, finally, I'm just going to be honest, after all is said and done, I need God. My friends, which is exactly what Solomon's going to tell us in weeks to come. But along the journey, along the road, we're going to discover that without God, life is meaningless. And if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, I've got some good news for you. You have the hope for the world around us. There's no reason to be in panic or fear about what's happening. It's a great opportunity, excitement. It's a great possibility to share life with God. But a lot of people have seen Christians for many, many years now, and they've seen that we're hypocrites and that we don't live life truly with God as our focus. And they've looked at us and said, it is irrelevant. It isn't true. But you can change that as you live life with God as your focus. And if you're here and and you you are a post-Christian person who's really kind of put all that aside and somebody's brought you here and you're, you're here, I just want you to know that there is a reason, there's a value to life. And it comes to you more than just trying to live and die. It's about living a life of real true meaning and significance, which only comes when you discover a purpose greater than yourself. And I firmly believe it's found in Jesus Christ. And you could discover life with God. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your words that are uh, I'm depressing, first of all, <laughs> honestly hopeless, because that's how we live apart from you, but are eternally significant when we realize we could have more than just life under this sun. We could have life with you through Jesus Christ, that we could have a changed life, and not just for here and now, not just in some religious subjective experience that will live and die and become food for worms, but that we would have an experience that's greater than ourselves because you are greater than us. We are not something just created by you for our life. We're created by you for relationship. And you are not just something we've created to cope with this world. You are true and you live and you are calling us and you speak to us and you put a moral right and wrong in our hearts. And Father, we can't get away from that. And you've spoken to us and you've planted eternity in our hearts so that we would seek you and reach out to you because you are not far from us. Father, you said in your word that if we uh, believe in you, if we confess these words that we're followers of Jesus, believe in the resurrection, the death and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection, that we will have eternal life. And so we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead and the Bible says we are saved and we are on a brand new relationship with you. So Father, give us hope, give us understanding, give us compassion for the world around us that is without hope and we carry it. We pray that we would carry it out this week in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.